Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing mental health, a modern day delusion. This is chapter 22 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. We're going to be discussing this area of modern mental health and helping you to understand how many of the things that we experience in that we're seeing mental health professionals for, there's actually solutions for in the Buddhist teachings in this path to enlightenment. In fact, there is a real need in some cases for mental health professionals and having those treatments available can be helpful for some people. But in terms of what is a real lasting permanent solution, that's where the Buddhist teachings come in. So in order to talk about mental health and understand how that relates to the teachings of Gautama Buddha and this path to enlightenment, it's first important that we revisit the very first discourse of Gautama Buddha to understand the problem, right? Because if we're going to be talking about the solution, which the mental health field offers and what Gautama Buddha offers as well, we need to understand clearly the problem. So I'm going to be discussing the three universal truths today, as well as the four noble truths. And we'll just discuss this to a certain level of detail, just as a refresher for those of you that have been part of the program for a while or have maybe been studying with me for a while. So as we go, feel free to ask questions and interact and really help to clarify what it is that I'm sharing with you. So let's describe the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And remember, as I teach this with you, just like with all the teachings that I share, don't believe anything that I say. It's important that you don't believe anything that I say, because belief isn't going to liberate the mind and help you to acquire wisdom. It's important that you understand what I'm sharing and that you reflect on it. And then you even practice what I'm sharing so that you can then see that it's actually truth for yourself. And that's how you acquire wisdom in this practice. And that wisdom is what liberates the mind because the mind is then functioning through this new wisdom of Gautama Buddha's teachings. So belief is not going to liberate the mind. Gautama Buddha never said to anybody, just believe me, just believe me, just believe me. No, he encouraged people to investigate his teachings. So learning and reflecting, applying them in practice, and really investigating through questions, through understanding, through 
getting clarification after you've thought about the teachings for a few days or a few weeks, ensuring that you really sit with the material and that you understand it and apply it in daily life so that you see that it actually is 100% true and based on the wisdom of Gautama Buddha. So the first of the three universal truths is impermanence. What impermanence is, is essentially describing that everything is not fixed or there isn't a permanent fixed state of things like your hair or your body or your relationships or your clothes or your job or your income. All of these things are constantly changing. There's nothing in this material world that is permanent. The only thing that's permanent is actually nibbana or enlightenment, this mental state that once you attain it, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, once you attain it, you will actually be able to maintain that permanently. But all other feelings are impermanent. It's conditioned feelings, right? The sadness, the happiness, the elation, the boredom, the loneliness, the fear, the guilt, the frustration, the anger, all of these feelings are impermanent. And we're going to get to why that is when we talk about the problem with the human mind. But first, it's important that you look at this first universal truth and you understand impermanence because we're going to build the wisdom here, build your knowledge to build up to understanding the problem. So If you would like to investigate the Buddhist teachings, one of the best ways to do that is try to disprove the Buddha. Because if the Buddha is saying and teaching impermanence and you can find something that's permanent, then you've essentially disproved the Buddha. So ask yourself, is your hair permanent? Does it stay the same length, the same color, and the same texture? Always. No. What about your physical body? Has that stayed the same since you were born? Nope, constantly changing. What about your relationships? Do you have the same people in your life from the beginning of your life all the way through? Nope, people come and go. What about your life itself? Is your life permanent? No, it's not permanent. You're gonna die and you have died several times in previous lives. So your life is not permanent either. This life that we're now living, it's not permanent. And things like our clothes, they're not permanent. We wear different clothes. We need to buy new clothes because they wear out because they are impermanent. Our jobs are impermanent. They change, they have different jobs all the time. We're not just keeping just one job. Our boyfriends, girlfriends, partners, our children, All these different relationships are all impermanent, okay? There's no steady fixed state of these material possessions, these relationships, and things like this. So this is the first universal truth, impermanence, that everything's impermanent except for this mental state of enlightenment or nibbana. The second universal truth is discontentedness. The Buddha used the word dukkha. You might be familiar with the word suffering. If you've studied Gautama Buddha's teachings in other places or other venues, they might use the word suffering. But I don't use this word suffering in the way that others do. 
because the word dukkha that Gautama Buddha used in Pali language and written down in Pali, he described it as three different feelings. He described dukkha as painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Essentially, the painful feelings are things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. All of these things are painful, right? Then the pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, elation, right? Those are pleasant feelings that people oftentimes long for, right? These happiness, excitement, elation. And then we have these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And for me, I would put in there boredom, loneliness, shyness, right? Kind of like uncomfortable. Shyness, it isn't painful. It's not pleasant. It's neither painful nor pleasant. These are a discontent mind. When the mind is sad, it's discontent. When it's angry, it's discontent. When it's frustrated, it's discontent. When it's annoyed, it's discontent. When it has guilt, it's discontent. When it has fear, it's discontent. When it has worry or it's missing people or missing certain situations, the mind is discontent. Same thing, when the mind is happy, it's discontent. When the mind's excited, it's discontent. When the mind is elated, it's discontent. Why? Because it's impermanent. Happiness is impermanent. It's not a permanent mental state or feeling that can be maintained permanently. Therefore, it's discontent, right? Have you ever been like super happy or super excited and then afterwards kind of crash and become very sad? Or have you been very happy or very excited and then, you know, tripped or twisted your ankle or fallen down or cut yourself by accident? This is because the mind is discontent. And that's why it's a feeling that is described as discontentedness. And same thing with when you're bored or you're lonely or you're shy. These are all discontent feelings or you're experiencing jealousy or resentment. These are all discontent feelings that the Buddha described as dukkha. Okay. Now, some people will describe this as suffering. But I don't describe it as suffering because suffering only describes the first feeling, which is painful, painful feelings. When I was happy or excited or elated, I would never say that I was suffering. Or if I was shy, I wouldn't say that I was suffering when I was shy. So that's why I use the word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. Because the more clearly we understand what the Buddha was actually teaching, the more likely you will be to eliminate these feelings because that's the whole goal of this path to enlightenment is to eliminate dukkha or eliminate suffering, some people say, or eliminate discontentedness. We need to eliminate these discontent feelings. So when the mind goes into sadness or anger or frustration, we need to learn how to bring that to the middle and not allow the mind to dwell there. And then if the mind goes to happiness, excitement, elation, you need to learn how to bring that back to the middle. 
And the better and better you get at that, the more skilled you get at training the mind and controlling the mind, you will be able to maintain this middle way where you might still laugh and joke, but you bring it right back to the middle, right? And this is a enlightened mind that can stay and maintain and reside in the middle. Now notice I mentioned happiness as discontentedness, essentially an undesirable feeling, right? Well, many of us have been taught throughout our life that we should seek happiness. I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Everybody's kind of pursuing or a lot of people are pursuing this happiness and excitement and elation. And that's kind of desirable for some people. But because those feelings are temporary, they're impermanent, the mind is then going to cycle over to anger, sadness, loneliness, boredom, or worse. So if we allow the mind to dwell in this happiness and excitement and elation, then we're essentially asking for it to then be sad at some point. And the mind will kind of cycle between these. So someone who's on this path, they will recognize kind of the danger in allowing the mind to dwell in the happiness so you'll get really well trained at bringing the mind back to the middle. So the goal isn't to seek happiness in life or seek this excitement, these pleasant feelings, because essentially by pleasure seeking, we're then longing with this mental longing and strong eagerness for pleasure. And we're trying to maintain in the mind this pleasure all the time. And because we can't, and that's gone, that's impermanent, the mind then cycles to sadness, anger, frustration. So we shouldn't have this pleasure-seeking mind. We need to learn to bring the mind to the middle and maintain it there. So the goal isn't to attain happiness. The goal is to attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. This can be permanent, and we'll explain why here in a bit. Okay, so discontentedness is the second universal truth, helping you understand that the unenlightened mind is going to experience discontentedness. It's going to experience painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. It's going to experience anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, happiness, excitement, elation, loneliness, boredom, shyness, resentment, jealousy, the unenlightened mind is going to experience these feelings. But later, we're going to talk about how to solve them, okay? The third universal truth is about non-self. Non-self is the third universal truth and typically a teaching that is understood much better, kind of more an intermediate or an advanced teaching as you really get a lot of Gautama Buddha's teachings learned and understood as a foundation. But let me just introduce it to you briefly here. Non-self is essentially the Buddha teaching that there is no self. There is no permanent, everlasting self. But the mind has one in the mind. We have one in the mind in the unenlightened state there is this concept of a self. And because of this concept of a self and this 
thought that this self never changes, we tend to build self-image, self-identity, ego around this self, and then we protect it. If somebody says something that's displeasing to an unenlightened being, then that unenlightened being is going to get angry and hostile or frustrated or irritated, right? Because it's protecting this self, right? And we carry this concept of a self in the mind because in our animal existences, we can't let go of the self. A deer has to be on the lookout and protect itself. It can't get rid of its fear. A lion, if somebody comes into its territory and threatens its tribe in its territory, it won't survive because it won't have the food and resources that it needs to sustain its life. So in animal existences, there needs to be a self in order to sustain life. But we carry that with us into the human world and we start to protect the self, much like an animal becoming angry and hostile and it causes problems for us in our relationships. So the teaching of non-self is bringing to the mind the understanding that there is no self, and then you have to work on eradicating the self that exists in the mind as part of attaining even the first stage of enlightenment. And then by the time you get to the fourth stage of enlightenment, you need to not only have eradicated the self, but also eliminated any arrogance or ego or judgment or conceit, okay? So you know that the teaching of non-self is truth even without really diving into it real deep by just kind of investigating the teaching a bit on your own. Because if you think about how you viewed yourself when you were a child or a teenager or early adulthood, you had a certain image in your mind of who you thought you were. And if you talk to the people around you, they would describe you in a certain way, right? But as you've aged, how you look at yourself and your self-image has changed, right? So there's no permanent self because this concept of a self, this image of a self that you're holding in the mind, it keeps changing. And even today, if I asked you, you know, describe yourself to me, you would describe yourself in a certain way. And then if I went and talked to some of your friends and family, they would describe you in different ways, right? So there's not this permanent fixed self that stays with us all the way through life. It's actually constantly changing. It's impermanent and it's in the mind. We hold on to this self and it really doesn't exist, but because we hold on to it so tightly, it causes us problems. So in order to reach to enlightenment, we need to actually eliminate this self, okay? Which is a whole nother topic than what I'm planning to talk about today. But let me just pause here and see if you have any questions on the three universal truths of impermanence, discontentedness, and non-self. As for uh, questions, we don't appear to have any questions at this time. Okay, so I will keep going and discussing the four noble truths, okay? So the three universal truths are a foundational teaching that helps you to understand the, the four noble truths. And we call these truths because of what I shared earlier is that Gautama Buddha's teachings aren't based on belief. These are truths that Gautama Buddha awakened to as part of his journey to enlightenment. And in order for you to awaken, 
you can't believe what I'm sharing with you here. You need to investigate these teachings and see that they're true for yourself. And then you will have the wisdom, right? In Gautama Buddha's teachings and Buddhist practices, there's not any followers. There's not any devotees, right? There's practitioners, right? People who are actively learning through an independent journey, but actively learning with the guidance of teachers. And then with this guidance, you need to actively investigate and interrogate these teachings so that you can see the wisdom in them. And then once you gain that wisdom, you start applying them in life and you start functioning very differently in the world than you were prior to learning these teachings. And you can see the mind, the condition of the mind improving the more that you gain this wisdom and start functioning through this new wisdom, that anger, frustration goes down to irritation, to annoyance, to a dislike, and you just slowly extinguish these unwholesome feelings and emotions. You slowly dis extinguish this discontentedness of the mind. Okay, so the three universal truths provide some foundation in which to now understand the four noble truths. The Four Noble Truths. The first one, the way that I describe it, is all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness, right? So we described what discontentedness is earlier. Painful feeling, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So if you experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, all of these things, right? Maybe jealousy, resentment. You're unenlightened. You know that. If you experience happiness and excitement and elation, you know that you're not yet enlightened. If you experience boredom or loneliness or shyness, then you know that you're not yet enlightened. Okay, if you're unenlightened, big deal. There's lots of unenlightened people in the world. The goal is to learn and practice these teachings so that you can attain enlightenment. Okay. But the way that I describe the four noble truths, the very first noble truth is helping you to understand that you're not yet enlightened, right? Because that's a big question that people are interested in is how do you know if you're enlightened or not? Well, one of the ways you know that you're not enlightened is if you experience these discontent feelings. Okay, so that's the first noble truth. All unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness of mind. The second noble truth is that we cause our own discontentedness because the mind craves for permanence when everything is impermanent. Okay, now we're going to describe that a couple times and give some examples. The second noble truth is that we cause our own discontentedness. We cause the anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, boredom, loneliness, shyness, happiness, excitement, elation. We cause it because the mind has craving or desire or attachment. What craving, desire, attachment is, it's this grasping, this holding. The mind is holding on. It has this mental longing with a strong eagerness. That's what craving, desire, attachment is. The mind longs for something with a strong eagerness, something that it doesn't have. It wants it so bad. 
And typically what the mind wants is this permanence. But everything's impermanent, right? So let me give you some examples. If you have a boyfriend and a girlfriend, if you're together with a partner, you guys might be together. When you first get together, everything is wonderful, right? You go to the park, you go have a coffee, you go to the movies, you come home, you relax a little bit. The relationship could not be more perfect because at this point, nobody really wants anything from each other, right? You're just interested to get to know each other, just hanging out. And that's why it's so wonderful. There's no discontentedness in the relationship because there is no mental longing with a strong eagerness. There's no craving, desire, attachment at that point, typically at the beginning of a relationship. But then as time goes on, the relationship changes. It gets more serious. We start having expectations for each other. We start having obligations. We start wanting things from each other. And then when those wants, those expectations, those obligations, i.e. craving, desire, attachments, don't get fulfilled, then the mind becomes discontent. The mind becomes angered or frustrated or irritated. And now all of a sudden, this relationship that was wonderful for the first couple of weeks or first couple of months or whatever it was, now all of a sudden it becomes discontent. It becomes difficult. There becomes tension in the relationship. And that's because you've caused it yourself because of this longing with a strong eagerness. And then if the relationship finishes and it's over, even if it's a conscious choice that you finish the relationship, then the mind might have boredom, loneliness, sadness, anger. Well, for some people, it might have happiness, excitement, elation, right? Because the relationship's over. There's some condition that has happened that the mind then becomes discontent, right? The condition is this relationship has been eliminated. And for oftentimes people will get lonely, bored, sad, angered, frustrated because the mind is wanting to hold on. It wants it to be permanent. It wants this relationship long-term. And even you've made a conscious decision to split the mind now becomes discontent. It wasn't because the person left. It wasn't because they said something bad to you. It wasn't because they just took another job and moved to the other part of the world. The problem in the second noble truth that the Buddha is explaining is your mind has this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing, wanting things with a strong eagerness. That's what's causing the mind to be discontent. Okay? We are causing this discontentedness ourselves. This is the cause of the discontent mind. Any questions on these first two noble truths? Yes, we have a couple of questions from Joy on Facebook. So Joy asks, so do you not ever feel happy or sad? You will feel joyful, but it won't be based on a condition. Happiness is based on a condition, right? You got a new job, so you get happy. It's based on some condition. You got a new pair of shoes. It's happy or excited 
because it's based on some condition. You've got a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new car. The mind becomes happy. It's based on some condition. An enlightened mind has removed all the conditions. So the enlightened mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy just all the time because there is no condition that's creating those mental states. So you will laugh, you will joke, you will have joy, but it's not based on any particular condition. And then you can bring the mind right back. You're not going to dwell in those happy feelings, craving for them to continue. What happens in the unenlightened state is the mind craves those pleasant feelings and it keeps craving and craving and craving and wanting those. And since it can't hold on to them permanently because they're all based on a condition, then the mind goes to sadness or anger or worse. Joy also asks, I have a strong desire for more stable emotional states, to be able to think before I react, to know I have value and not worry about what other people think. This is what has brought me here. Isn't a desire for peace and calm what draws people here? That might be what starts the path. That might be the reason why people start the path. But what you need to evolve to is pursue the path to enlightenment as a interest, as an objective, as a goal. The more you want enlightenment or crave Nibbana, you're not going to be able to get it. You have to actually even eliminate the craving, that longing and strong eagerness for enlightenment. So that initial desire might be what brought people to learning the path because they really would like peace, but we need to like it. We need to be interested in it. We need to have a goal. We need to have objectives. We need to seek it and pursue it, but not with a longing and a strong eagerness, right? We can't allow the mind to become complacent or lazy. We need to maintain our dedication and our commitment to learning and growing. But if you do try to pursue this path with a longing and strong eagerness, you're just going to keep getting frustrated more and more and more because you still have craving. You need to eliminate. That's the third noble truth that we're going to get into is you need to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment. Shital on Zoom asks, how can you make your mind contented if we do not have expectations of anyone? Expectations are you or me or whoever trying to get other people to do certain things. And what happens with this craving, this poison of craving, this unwholesome root, this fire of craving, is we think that this object of our affection, this outward seeking of getting everyone to do things our way is what's going to please the mind. We think that's what's going to create the peacefulness and the contentedness. But what it does is it creates a little bit of happiness. If you convince somebody to do something your way, you might be happy for a period of time, but now your expectations change because your expectations are impermanent. So even if you train your kids or train your partner or train your parents or your friends to do certain things that you would like them to do, it's a never ending pursuit because your expectations keep changing. And they keep changing as people too. And not everybody can do things the way that you want them to do it. So you can't train 
the entire world to do things your way in order to attain peacefulness. What you're doing is you're seeking happiness, which is based on the condition of everybody doing things your way. And as long as they do things your way, i.e. your expectations, then the mind will be happy. But as soon as someone doesn't do it your way, anger, frustration, irritation, that's where it comes in. And what you need to do is instead of trying to train all these people to do things your way with expectations, you need to train your mind not to have these expectations. Now, in certain relationships, there needs to be baseline foundational kind of requirements for a healthy relationship like politeness, kindness, respectfulness, you know, talking polite to people. It's understandable that you would only involve people in your life that you feel are not hostile to you or not aggressive to you, right? But I don't consider that an expectation. I consider that kind of a foundational requirement in order for there to be a healthy relationship. But what causes problems is when we start putting expectations on others and now we expect them to fulfill these expectations. And then even if they fulfill one, two, or three of these expectations and they do that for a period of time, there's going to be a second or a third person that enters the picture that's not doing things the way that you expect. Or your expectations will change. And now you have to train them to do more things and more things and more things. So you're just going to be on this never-ending quest of trying to train the world to do things your way. And then when they don't, you're just going to keep being angry, frustrated, irritated, and the discontentedness just continues. So by eliminating this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, i.e. expectations, obligations, and wants, then you can train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you don't have any conditions in which those mental states need to be created. If your son goes outside and plays in the dirt, okay, you can be fine with that. Or if you see him and you don't want him to play in the dirt, you can just say, hey, you know, don't play in the dirt. You're making a mess. Come inside or clean up or however you would like to do that. But if you have all these expectations, those are just conditions that you're trying to get met in order to feel these pleasant feelings. So if you remove the conditions and you just find way to exist peacefully with other people, to peacefully coexist, you can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Chital has also made a comment that believing that things are impermanent makes me feel fearful. You shouldn't believe that anything's impermanent. You should see it for yourself that for sure, 100% truth with wisdom, that everything is impermanent. And the reason why that might make you feel fearful is because your mind craves permanence. You haven't trained it to accept and understand impermanence. So because the mind is holding on with permanence, when the mind starts experiencing impermanence, that's when the discontentedness comes in, the guilt, shame, or fear in your case. So you're essentially proving right here that the second noble truth is 100% true. And hopefully you see the wisdom in that, that the mind craves permanence, 
right? We cause our own discontent mind because the mind craves permanence when everything's impermanent. So now with your mind craving permanence and expecting everything to be permanent, when the impermanence gets introduced into the picture, that's why your mind's discontent. That's why you're experiencing the fear. You're causing it yourself because your mind is holding on and it wants this permanence. And now when it starts realizing that things aren't permanent, the mind becomes discontent and you're causing it yourself because you haven't yet had exposure to these teachings to actually train the mind so that you can then accept impermanence and train the mind to accept impermanence. That's why you're causing your fear because you're still holding on and craving permanence. We have a question from Manal on Facebook. She says, I suppose the opposite of craving is complacency. How do I overcome this? I think my complacency is a cover up for deeper insecurities, a disbelief in myself stemming from childhood trauma. I think my complacency might be one of my biggest hurdles. Yes, complacency is one of the big hurdles for everybody, and it needs to be eradicated in order to pursue this path. So what you're talking about, like you said, is kind of two opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got craving on one side, this longing, this strong eagerness to pursue, and then you've got complacency on the other side. And what did the Buddha teach? The Buddha taught to be in the middle. Because it's only when the mind's in the middle that it's going to perform optimally. So what the Buddha said, whenever the mind is sluggish, okay, we're going to talk about the seven factors of enlightenment. Whenever the mind is sluggish, you practice the enlightenment factors of energy, joy, and investigation. Okay, so when the mind's sluggish, you practice energy, having energy, and move it forward. Get up, go do things, right? Joy, having joy, and investigation, investigating the teachings. He taught people to investigate the teachings, learn them, apply them. You have to lift up your boots, put on your pants, and you have to practice these seven factors of enlightenment. Here, when the mind's sluggish, energy, joy, and investigation. And then when the mind is excited, you need to practice the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are all in chapter three of the book. And the seventh factor is mindfulness. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. The Buddha said you need to practice that all the time, essentially 24 hours a day, seven days a week, practicing awareness of mind. So if you look in chapter three, it will give you the seven factors of enlightenment so that when your mind's feeling sluggish, you know what to do to kind of pick it up. Or if the mind's feeling too excited, you know what to do to, to bring it to the middle. And that's why he's provided these teachings because he knows the mind dwells on either side in the unenlightened state and it helps you to bring the mind to the middle. That's really helpful, David, because also the antidote to complacency is not craving. No, it's not. And and likewise, I suppose that complacency can come about as a result of craving because maybe we're craving, you know, this pleasant, comfortable existence of sitting on the sofa Mm -hmm. rather than doing what we actually need to do. 
And so these enlightenment factors are things we need to cultivate, but never out of craving, right? Have I understood that correctly? Yes, 100%. And if, you know, the middle is here in the middle, right? And this is like the high, pleasant feelings, excited feelings above that. And then below that is the sluggish, complacent, painful feelings, right? Well, what typically happens is the unenlightened mind goes whoom, 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 and now it gets to the middle, right, for enlightenment. That's the whole symbol that we're going to talk about next week. The symbol that shows enlightenment, it basically shows this narrowing in on the middle, right? So if somebody comes to this path with craving, desire, attachment for the path, for enlightenment, then as they're trying to correct that, they may drop down to complacency, right? And the mind is just going to keep flipping up and down, up back and forth between excited to sluggish, excited to sluggish. And that's why we have the seven factors of enlightenment to help us kind of fine tune that. This is like when you're tuning the guitar and you're just turning those little tuning dials ever so slightly more and more as you get closer and closer to the actual pitch that you're looking for in the string of the guitar. So it's normal to have complacency in the unenlightened mind, but you got to pick up your boots and bring that further. It's normal to have craving, desire, attachment, but you got to bring that down and, and temper it, right? That's why the fire, right? The three fires is kind of like extinguishing this fire, but you have to maintain this middle way in order to perform optimally for the mind to perform optimally thanks david that's really helpful we have no more questions at this time okay so moving into the third noble truth so the first noble truth is all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness of mind all those three feelings painful pleasant neither painful nor pleasant and all the feelings associated with those we cause our own discontent mind through craving, attachment, desire, craving for things to be permanent when everything's impermanent, essentially. The third noble truth is that we can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the craving, desire, attachment. Okay, by eliminating that longing for a strong eagerness for everything to be permanent, then we eliminate the discontent mind. Okay. And there's lots of longing and strong eagerness that the unenlightened mind experiences, not just for enlightenment, but for a boyfriend, for a girlfriend, for an income, for a house, for a car, for friends, for new clothes, for, you know, many, many, many different things that the mind longs for, right? And because of that, the mind is causing itself to be discontent. But what we need to do is train the mind through Gautama Buddha's teachings to eliminate that mental longing with a strong eagerness that the mind holds on to all of these things and craves and has this longing and this strong eagerness for things. Okay, so that's the third noble truth is that we can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the craving, desire, attachment. The mind's tendency to hold on and have this longing with a strong eagerness. And then of course, the fourth noble truth is the way leading to the complete elimination of the discontent mind is the Eightfold Path, 
okay? So what the Buddha describes here in the Four Noble Truths is we're describing what is the problem? Well, the problem is the discontent mind and people are unenlightened. That's the problem. What's the cause of the problem? The cause is we cause it ourselves because of craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness for permanence when everything's impermanent. What's the solution? Eliminating the craving, desire, attachment for permanence. Eliminating the mind's tendency to have this longing with a strong eagerness for permanence and holding on to things. That's the solution. And then the fourth noble truth is, what is the complete solution? Well, the complete solution is learning and practicing the Eightfold Path. Okay, so he gives us the problem, the cause of the problem, the solution to the problem, and then the complete solution to the entire problem with the human mind in four simple statements. Okay? This is what's wrong with the human mind. Craving, the number one primary problem. There's other problems too. The craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. The self, the ego, the ten fetters. These are all problems, right? These are all problems with the mind that causes challenges in the mind. But the primary problem is this craving, this desire, this attachment. So now that you understand the problem, now we can talk about mental health, okay? The mind is not the brain. The brain is the physical structures in the body, in the skeleton. That's the brain. The mind is separate from the brain. So the brain is not the mind and the mind is not the brain. The mind is separate. It's intangible. It can't be physically touched. You know, some people will point here when they talk about the mind. A lot of Thai people will touch the heart. People in other cultures say the mind's kind of outside the body. In my view, the mind isn't physical, so there really is no way to distinguish where it actually is. And in reality, it doesn't really matter where it is because we have to train it. It doesn't matter where it is. We have to train it either way, right? So it doesn't matter where this mind is. But what's happening in the mental health field is in some situations, people will feel sad or lonely or have fears or have other discontentedness. And they will end up visiting a medical professional in order to seek medicines that are going to somehow fix this problem. Typically what's taught to people in that field is that there's a defect in the brain, that the brain isn't producing the right chemicals, and therefore we need to introduce this medicine, these chemicals, in order to fix the chemicals of the brain, and that's what's going to solve the sadness. But we know sadness is caused by our own longing and our strong eagerness. We know that the mind and the brain are separate. So introducing a chemical to adjust the brain chemistry, while that might be needed for certain situations in certain situations to get people over a certain hump, it's not a permanent solution 
because the thing that's causing the sadness is the craving, the desire, the attachment, the mental longing with a strong eagerness. That's what's causing the sadness or that's what's causing the boredom or the loneliness or the anxiety or the guilt or the fear. It's the craving, desire, attachment, and a medication isn't going to solve that. And if we're using chemicals in order to change brain chemistry, that's not fixing what's in the mind, what the mind is holding on to. So let me give you an example. Let's say I was sexually abused as a child and I had very traumatic experience growing up and being sexually abused as a child. And now later in life, these memories start coming back because the mind holds on to this stuff because it has this craving, desire, attachment, this longing, this grasping, it holds on to these memories. And now they start coming back and causing anger and frustration and irritation, maybe even fears and sadness, despair, depression, right? We call it depression. Well, if I take a medicine to change the chemicals in the brain, this isn't going to release these traumatic experiences that I had as a child. What needs to happen is the mind needs to be trained to let this go. And a lot of times in mental health therapy, which includes medicine and talk therapy, a lot of times talk therapists will want the person to relive these experiences and bring them up in the mind and kind of relive these traumatic events that happened from their childhood or some other time in their life. And bringing them back to the mind can actually cause a lot of discontentedness because these memories are now being refreshed in the mind. And what I'm sharing is through Gautama Buddha's teachings, if you learn things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the four Brahma Viharas, the seven factors of enlightenment, you learn meditation, you learn all of these teachings, you can actually train the mind to let go of these painful feelings, to let them go. You still might have memories that they existed and those things happened to you. You will still remember them, but because the mind isn't holding on to it, it won't create the discontentedness. The mind can actually release this through training of the mind. Okay, let's take another example. Something like bipolar disorder. A lot of us are kind of familiar with that. If you're not, what bipolar disorder is, is bipolar disorder, people will tend to live in kind of this excited or what we call manic or mania, this real excited phase. And then for some people, they kind of crash down into depression and sadness. Okay. We call this bipolar disorder. And what people are taught is that there's some chemical imbalance in the brain and you're going to have this for the rest of your life and a lot of people are put on medication for the rest of their life for these conditions but essentially what's happening is the mind is untrained the mind can't be controlled 
because it's untrained. So the mind will go to these pleasant feelings, these excited feelings. It will oftentimes crave these excited feelings. Bipolar people oftentimes will crave sexual activity and they'll have in the manic phase, they'll have a lot of sex, a lot of sex, a lot of sex because they're craving these pleasant feelings, right? They may even steal things or they may talk really fast or really rapidly because the mind is racing really quickly. It has a lot of activity. And then at some point after that racing and that mania, people will sometimes crash. Some people live in that mania all the time, but they will sometimes crash into sadness and despair and misery because they were chasing those pleasant feelings for so much, maybe spending a lot of money. They maybe have drug or alcohol addictions, sexual addictions, all kinds of cravings come up where it's craving those pleasant feelings. And then eventually that crashes. And for some people, they experience sadness and despair. Right? They go from these pleasant feelings to sad feelings. And for some bipolar people that are labeled as bipolar, they stay in the sadness, in the, in the despair, right? And they kind of live there and maybe bubble up to mania in this excited phase at some point. But what's really happening here is not that a chemical imbalance is going on, it's causing this. There may be a chemical imbalance because the human body functions in a certain way and there may be some chemical things that are happening there. But just taking medicine to try to balance those chemicals doesn't solve the problem because the primary problem is not that the chemicals are imbalanced. The primary problem is craving, desire, attachment. The mind is longing with a strong eagerness for these pleasant feelings. It's longing for the sexual activity. It's longing for happiness. It's longing for excitement, for elation. It's longing, it may desire wealth. So sometimes people who are in these phases, they will maybe gamble a lot, right? So the mind has this craving, this desire, this attachment. It's longing with a strong eagerness. It doesn't matter what medication you take, it's not going to fix that. It's not going to fix that. In fact, sometimes people with bipolar become very angry, very aggressive, very frustrated, and they talk very aggressively and hostile. Well, no medication is going to fix that. That's training of the mind to learn right intention and right speech. And the problem here with the mental health industry which is conditioning people's minds to think that they are mentally ill and there's a defect in the human brain, the problem is, is they're not practicing right view. The first step of the Eightfold Path is right view, which is the Four Noble Truths, understanding that we are causing our own problem and we can actually eliminate it. So the problem that's being presented to people that have these pleasant feelings and these painful feelings is your brain's defective. You weren't born with a properly functioning brain. Therefore, we need to introduce this chemical in order to fix all of this. And it's not really going to be a permanent fix because you're going to have to take this medicine essentially for the rest of your life. And you're still going to experience all these symptoms 
but nonetheless take this medication, right? So people are being led to believe that the problem is physical in nature and it's chemically based rather than understanding craving, desire, and attachment and understanding that you can eliminate craving, desire, attachment through training the mind and practicing this eightfold path. People are being led to believe that the anger and frustration that they are having is chemically based when in reality it's just based on craving, desire, and attachment. They're being led to believe that they speak hostile and angry because of this chemical imbalance when in reality the mind just isn't trained to practice things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right? And oftentimes people get relegated to medications for the rest of their life. And I'm speaking about this from personal experience because for 24 years, I was in the mental health industry as a patient. I was taking medications and I can tell you story after story of straight jackets and five-point restraints and injections and countless doctor visits and therapy visits. Nothing ever worked. You know, I couldn't even sleep at night without taking a bunch of pills. And this is because the mind is holding on to various traumas, various experiences, various conditioning that is causing the mind to be sad or it's longing for this happiness and it's wanting these certain conditions of sexual contact, gambling, money, alcohol, drugs, and they're chasing this pleasant feelings. So I've completely eliminated all the medication for almost two years now. And I was told that I was gonna be on this medication for my entire life, that my brain was defective well, if you weren't sad when you went in to see the doctor, going in and talking to the doctor and hearing that you have a defective brain will certainly make you sad, will certainly make you sad, right? So when I eventually got to doctors and I was told that I had this defective brain that I was gonna have to live with for the rest of my life, think about how a person in authority with this white jacket on and telling you that you have this defective brain and you've got to take this medicine for the rest of your life. Think about the conditioning and the impression that that makes. In my case, I was 20, 21, right? And sure, I was having hallucinations. Sure, I was having delusions. Sure, I was hearing voices that other people weren't hearing. Sure, I was seeing things that other people weren't seeing. And people describe this as delusion and hallucinations and hearing these voices, right? Potentially schizophrenia. But these are people that are unaware of things like the cycle of rebirth. They're unaware of these previous lives with residual memories that we have in the mind and these can come back as voices. They're unaware of these five realms of existence that when the mind starts to awaken, you can actually get contact and communication from these various realms, from the afflicted spirits, from the heavenly realm. You can actually tap into these other beings and these other beings can tap into you. And if you're unaware of this stuff, 
and you don't have the knowledge or understanding of these things and you can't comprehend what's going on and you start hearing these voices of people and you don't realize that those are prior lives, then the mind becomes even more untangled and it starts to unravel. Or if you start getting this kind of divine energy or this demonic energy from the afflicted spirits realm and you're not understanding what that is and you're not around people that understand it, sure, they're going to tell you you're mentally ill because they've never seen this before. They don't have this understanding. And what's going to happen is they're going to put you on medication. And in certain situations, if you're having hallucinations and delusions, medications may be the answer for you. When I was in those situations where my mind had completely unraveled and I was having hallucinations and delusions, there is no amount of meditation that was going to fix that. There's no amount of learning the Eightfold Path that was going to fix that. There's no learning the three universal truths and the four noble truths. It's too late for that at that point. You know, I needed the medication to bring the mind to a more kind of stable place. But if we start our children off and if we all understand these things and we practice these things, your mind's never going to get to that point where you're having all those hallucinations and delusions because you've, you're training the mind actively as you go through life. So if these mental illnesses are truly a illness and a condition of the brain, a defective brain, we would expect to see these same defects across all populations of people because it's a human problem with the physical brain. So we would expect everyone in the world to have these same problems. But here in Thailand, we don't see that. We don't see a large population of people that have what we would consider maybe mental illness and put on medications. They actually go to the temple and they get help for their mind through training with the Buddhist teachings. Additionally, if this mental health industry is actually helping because it's been available for however many decades now, we would expect that the number of cases would be declining. We would expect that the more people that rise up that have this defective brain, they get this medicine and then the number of cases would start declining. We don't see that. We see a proliferation of these mental illness diagnoses. We would also expect that where these mental health professionals in this industry and in this discipline is the strongest, places like America and other Western countries, we would expect that if this mental health industry was really helping and was really solving a real problem, we would expect the population of people in these Western countries to be among the most mentally stable and mentally fit populations in the entire world. But that's not what we see, right? What we see in America is we see mass shootings. We see a lot of mental health issues. We see a lot of symptoms of sadness and despair and anger and frustration, hostility, right? And it's just because in America and other Western countries, they don't understand the three universal truths. They don't understand the four noble truths. They don't understand the Eightfold Path. These teachings haven't really 
permeated in that culture yet. And because of that unknowing of true reality, the people have tried to figure out what's going on here and they've related it to brain chemistry, which what I'm saying is it's not 100% correct. It's not 100% truth. And it doesn't matter how much medication that we take. For me, I was just taking more and more and more and more and more medication because I was getting less and less and less and less results, right? It wasn't until I discovered Gautama Buddha's teachings, fully understanding his teachings and training the mind in his teachings, that the mind became peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently and no medications, right? And it was only by me being here in Thailand and having access to these teachings that I was able to do that. And one of my goals now is through my experiences of the mental health industry for 24 years and my experience around these teachings for almost 20 years now is now to bring these teachings to the Western audience and anywhere else around the world that is interested to learn so that people who are taking these medications and have been told they have a defective brain can understand that that's not what actually is happening. And through learning and practicing and training the mind with this, your support of your family and with the support of your doctors, you will most likely be able to slowly, gradually eliminate your medications, freeing yourself from a lifetime of expense, freeing yourself from a lifetime of side effects and liberating the mind so that you can function with freedom and without having this medication that you're constantly needing to take. So let me pause here and see what questions we have from our group. So we have a question from Joy on Facebook. She asks, I am on several medications for several mental illnesses. What should I do? Do I practice this philosophy and eventually move away from them? Yes, that's what I would suggest is the more that you learn about Gautama Buddha's teachings and you've got guidance, right? You've got a book, you've got YouTube videos, podcasts, you've got quizzes, you've got online classes, you've got in-person classes. You can reach out to me privately and have private discussions with me to learn how to practice these teachings. You've got the Facebook group to get help. You know, I'm providing all of these resources to help you learn and practice, right? You've got to get stable with these practices, right? If you're just starting out and you haven't really learned these very deeply, you've got to learn these teachings very deeply and start practicing them for a period of time. And then you will know for yourself. That's the beauty in Gautama Buddha's teachings is because they're not based on belief, you will see the condition of the mind improve and you will know for yourself when is the right time to start decreasing your medicines. I've worked with several students who have done the same thing, who have learned these teachings. I don't tell people to get off their medications. I don't instruct you when to get off your medications, but you will know for yourself because the mind will gradually improve. And when you're ready to get off medications, if you would like guidance in terms of gradually reducing them, letting your doctor know, having the support of your family, things like this, I would give you that advice but you can absolutely reduce and eliminate these medications 
I don't know 100% of what your illnesses are that they're saying are illness, but if they're the typical depression, bipolar, anxiety, eating disorders, phobias, OCD, ADD, ADHD, um, PTSD, all of these things, even multiple personality disorders, right? This is just memories from past lives that are coming into the mind, right? There's so many mental illnesses that we can look at and we can directly relate to the teachings of the Buddha. And depending on what your conditions are, again, in consultation with your doctor, with your family, but first through learning and practicing these teachings, you will see the condition of the mind improve and you'll be able to reduce and then eliminate these medications. Okay, another one from Joy and also one from Deborah. I've combined them into one question. So Joy asked, also, it isn't related to mental health always, but I have medical issues that also cause pain. Is medicine okay for that? And then Deborah asked, would medication be regarded as intoxicants? Okay, good questions. So because we're talking about mental illness, let me, in medical conditions that can kind of actually be precursors to enlightenment, right? So if the mind starts having these residual thoughts and memories of previous lives, it can kind of show you that your mind's starting to awaken and that's why you're having these residual memories. I also was diagnosed with muscular sclerosis when I was in America. And I was told to, that I was going to need to start taking injections. And I was probably not going to be walking within 10 years. Okay. That was seven years ago. Okay. And when I came to Thailand, they said, you know, you don't need to take it yet. You know, your symptoms aren't that serious. See what happens now that you're in Thailand. So even symptoms of things like muscular sclerosis, I realized through learning and practicing these teachings, through being in this environment, through eating this healthy food that's here in Thailand, all those symptoms were eliminated as well. The pain that I was experiencing with muscular sclerosis or what I was told was muscular sclerosis. So I would have pain, joint pain. I would have pains in my muscles. I would have twitching. I would have numbness and tingling in various parts of my body, all different kinds of things, right? And I chose not to take that medicine. And I went to like one of the best doctors in all of America because I had really good insurance at that time. It was a doctor at George Washington Hospital. And I chose not to take the, the medication. And I just had a feeling that that wasn't the, the right road to resolve this. So whether you take medicine for pain or not is a personal choice. You need to decide when and how to, to take medications. Taking medication by itself, there isn't anything wrong with medication. What's wrong is the overprescription of medication, right? The, the reliance on medication. Of course, if you have certain conditions and you need medication, I mean, there's medications like for diabetics where their pancreas just isn't working and they need insulin. Without that, they're gonna die right? That is absolutely medication that's needed in order to sustain life. And the longer they sustain their life, the more they can train the mind and reach to enlightenment. But 
certain medications kind of get overprescribed. Certain pain medications and medications in the mental health field and so forth oftentimes get overprescribed. So you have to decide on a case-by-case basis whether you really truly need this medication or not and whether or not it really is, is warranted for your particular situation. Taking medication is not an intoxicant if you're doing it for medical purposes. If you get hooked to opioids and you're taking it for the high, or for example, there's people nowadays that smoke marijuana because they feel sad or they have anxious feelings, right? And they say, this is a medical reason why I need to take the marijuana. Well, there's no doubt that marijuana is a medicine that can help things like seizures and other medical problems in the world. But if we're taking things like marijuana, for sadness or anxiety, these are things that the Buddhist teachings will will solve. The more you learn and practice to train the mind and control the mind, you actually solve those types of problems. But if you're taking, like for example, uh, if you get a headache and you decide to take medicine to alleviate the headache, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not an intoxicant. But what you should do is have some awareness of why this headache came because Headaches come for a reason. You experience pain in the body to tell the mind something's wrong. So if you're having a headache, it can be lack of sleep. It can be dehydration. It can be caffeine. It can be you're too busy, stretched too thin. You've overwhelmed yourself with too many tasks. So if you're just relying on the medicine and not paying attention to the decisions that you made in your life that is causing the headaches, then you're just gonna be relying on that medicine all the time, right? So you have to get in touch with why is this headache occurred? And if you're practicing mindfulness meditation, if you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and you're developing awareness of mind, then you will be very aware of what you're intaking into your body. You'll be very aware of your daily activities And when something changes, then you should know why this headache has come on, right? And maybe you decide to take that medicine to alleviate that pain in that particular instance, but then you realize you're not getting enough sleep and you make decisions to make sure you get enough sleep. Or you take the medicine to alleviate the headache and then you realize I've been drinking caffeine and this is why I have the headache or or I'm detoxing from caffeine and this is why I've got the headache. So you've got to look at the deeper reason of why you have the headache, because the more enlightened you become, you won't have headaches because the mind is functioning optimally, right? You will have so much awareness of mind. You won't have any stress. You won't have anger. You won't have frustration. You won't have all of these discontent feelings and you will have such awareness of mind. The mind will be optimally performing in the middle and you won't experience headaches. But if you just keep allowing things like a headache and keep taking the pain medication, then you're not making the decisions that is gonna move the mind to performing optimally. Now, if you get in a car accident or a motorbike accident and you've got pain in the body from a physical injury and you take that medication, sure, that's going to alleviate the painful feelings in the mind and help you to repair and recover in that illness. That's not an intoxicant. 
because you're taking it for a medical purpose. But if you get hooked to that, and then even when the medical issue is resolved, you continue to take it, now that's an intoxicant. So that's why one of the reasons why it's important to have a teacher for guidance like this, because it's not as easy to navigate this path for us to just say something like marijuana is wrong, right? That That's a black and white. That's not the way to really navigate this path because marijuana can be used to help things like seizures. Same thing with pain medication. It's important to have guidance because somebody can't just say, no, don't ever take pain medication. And someone can't say, yes, take it in all situations. Because if you take it in all situations, then you're avoiding the reasons why you need the pain medication. And you've got to make better decisions so that you don't need the pain medication. And if you don't take the pain medication ever, then that can cause problems for you too. So that's where you've got to find this middle and having guidance from a teacher to kind of navigate some of these things can be really helpful for you. There is no real black and white in terms of these types of decisions on this path. But I can certainly tell you that all of these mental illness conditions, or I shouldn't say all, I should say the common ones that I'm aware of, depression, bipolar, anxiety, stress, anorexia, bulimia, all of these different things, suicidal thoughts, things like this, these can all be remedied through Gautama Buddha's teachings for people who are learning and practicing these good wholesome teachings to train the mind so that then you can control the mind. We have a question from Sri on Zoom. She asks, how can we overcome OCD and obsessive thoughts and restlessness? Also, I'm experiencing chronic pain and squeezing sensations in the head. I'm taking psychiatric medicine, but it is making me vomit and is not helping my mind. I got this pain after one situation where I did not get the seat in university, which I wanted. I got more upset that I have a mental health problem and the doctor told me to stop my studies. I can't see sadness in my father's face because he wants me to achieve a good education and job. I am unable to satisfy my father's hopes. No matter how much I try, I am unable to overcome this feeling. Okay, so the expectations that your dad has of you, you can't fulfill those. There's just no way. You have to be your own person. The expectations your dad has for you, those are his attachments. Those, that's his craving, his desire, his attachments. And even if you start fulfilling some of those things, his expectations are going to change. So you have to recognize that you're on an independent journey. You can't allow other people's craving, desire, attachment to affect your decisions. You have to decide what's best for your life. Okay, that's the first one. And that could be part of the problem that's causing the symptoms that you're calling mental illness or that the doctors are calling mental illness. If you've got a lot of pressure from expectations from the family and you're trying to live up to that and that craving, that desire, that attachment, you're kind of inheriting that from your family and taking it on as a burden. And now you're trying to pursue it that will cause the mind to be pretty sad when you realize you can't live up to their expectations. So the first thing you've got to do is recognize that that is their expectation. Your life is your life and you've got to make your own decisions in your life. And that will help you 
to alleviate the stress that comes with that. It's going to take you time because obviously you're attached to your dad. You're attached to what he says and what he shares with you. You've got to work on eliminating that through these teachings with breathing mindfulness meditation and all the other teachings that I share as part of this program. So you've got to put that to the side and work on that and training the mind to let go of dad and let go of his expectations. You can still love him. You can still care for him. You can still wish him well, have relationships, but you can't inherit his expectations. In terms of the things that you mentioned that you're currently taking medication for, it's really important that we don't call this OCD and some of the other ones. I, I can't remember what you actually said. Max listed a whole bunch of them there. But it's important that we don't call it those things because as long as we call it OCD or fears or whatever we call it, phobias, whatever, we still are associating it with a mental illness and we're still considering it a defect of the brain. But it's not. Depending on what your OCD is because what people call OCD is really just a grouping of symptoms. So what we have to understand in order for someone like me to help you is understand what are the symptoms that you're experiencing. This label that's been given OCD, the first thing I do, and that's why I don't remember all the things that Max just said, because the first thing I do is I throw those things out because those labels of OCD, bipolar, whatever else was in there, I just throw those out because those are just labels kind of grouping 10 or 20 different symptoms. So what we got to get to is what are the symptoms? Are you having repetitive thoughts? Are you trying to be perfect with every little thing that you're doing? Are you a perfectionist? What is it that really is happening here? And if you want to share that information about what symptoms you're experiencing, or you want to have a private discussion with me, we can do that. Because what we need to get to is what the symptoms are. And this is why I really want to make this clear, and I made it clear in the book, the anguish and suffering that people are experiencing and these symptoms that people are experiencing are 100% true. The anguish, the suffering, the symptoms, the sadness, the loneliness, the worry, the obsessive thoughts, all these different symptoms, the anguish and suffering that comes with that is 100% real. There's lots of people in the world that have discontentedness of mind. That is real. But what we're labeling it, OCD, bipolar, depression, all of these things, and it's a mental illness, that's what I'm saying is a delusion. It's a modern day delusion. It's not true, right? So if we get to the heart of what is your mind actually doing, i.e. what are the symptoms, then I can really help you in order to alleviate these symptoms. And then working with your doctor or your family, you can start to eliminate these medications, but you need to first get skilled in understanding Gautama Buddha's teachings and applying them in your life along with meditation so that you create some stability of mind. And once you start getting the stability of mind and you start seeing that and experiencing what that feels like for the first time of having that stability of mind, you'll know when it's the right time to start eliminating your medications if you choose to do that.
Yeah, so one of the other things that Sri mentioned was I don't have any guides or teachers from outside other than these Facebook groups, or the, sorry, the, other than this Facebook group and online. I am from India, and here there are no followers or temples of the Enlightened One. If you would like help, that's what I'm here for. I can teach anybody anywhere in the world, luckily with modern technology, and all the resources that I share are shared freely and openly. There are a small group of people who do support me with some financial donations, but I don't expect it, but it is needed, but I don't expect that. So if you find yourself in a position where you can support me, that's fine. But if you don't have donations or something, that's fine as well. I'm willing to help you and anyone else in the world free of charge, openly, without any expectations from me, any obligations. So reach out to me. You can friend me. You can send me a message. I will schedule some private time where we can talk by audio or video because your case sounds like it's more involved than what we probably have time for in a public class. And some one-on-one time would be really helpful to get you started and get you moving through these teachings. So I'm offering the support and guidance to you you just need to reach out and connect with me and choose to step forward in order to learn and practice the teachings. We have a question from Shital. How do you get over your longing for your parents' love and acceptance? I am suffering from severe depression. My parents always placed high expectations on me and I always went on to pursue them in trying to get their love and acceptance, even while my likings were at odds with theirs. And in the process, I developed depression. And now I either feel lonely or feel like crying all the time. Is it possible to cure depression? Is it possible to let go of my craving for unconditional love, mostly from parents, and this never gets met? So I'll ask you, great question, by the way, but so I'll ask you, Gautama Buddha said that we cause our own discontent mind and we can eliminate it. Discontentedness is this sad sadness that you're talking about, these painful feelings. We can eliminate this 100%. What people are calling depression is essentially just sadness. It's deep, deep, deep sadness, deeply rooted sadness. The mind feels almost stuck, right? I remember I was labeled with depression. I had a lot of sadness in my life. I remember those times. You can eliminate it. If I can eliminate it, you can eliminate it. You can train the mind to eliminate this craving, this desire, this attachments that are causing the sadness, but you need guidance and you need help and you need resources to do that, right? What you need to do in order to eliminate this longing with a strong eagerness for your parents' love and affection is first you have to understand that you're causing this sadness yourself because of that longing, and it sounds like you do. And then secondly, you need to understand what is love because Love isn't what you understand it to be right now. In the unenlightened state, we misunderstand love. We think that these obligations that we're fulfilling is going to create love. But love is unconditional. True love is unconditional. I don't know if you've had any open talks with your parents. I don't know the condition of how your parents think of things, if they are indeed putting these expectations on you, 
or if you're putting them on yourself. But true love is unconditional. And if your parents aren't giving you unconditional love, if they are, in fact, putting expectations and obligations on you, then that's a problem that they're having. But you're making it your problem because you're accepting those expectations and obligations rather than you realizing that that's their expectations and obligations. And that's not true love. If somebody truly loves you, they have no expectations, no conditions on their love. What true love is, is I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be well. That's true love. I love you. Therefore, I would like to see you be well. Whatever you enjoy, whatever you would like to do, you do that. I love you. My love comes without any conditions, no expectations, no obligations. I love you. I would like to see you be well. That's love. What we misunderstand love to be in the unenlightened state is, I love you, daughter. Therefore, I want you to make me happy. And if you fulfill these expectations, you will make me happy. That's not love. That's selfishness. That's give me all of this stuff, daughter, or give me all this stuff, husband. Give me all this stuff, wife. Give me all this stuff, children. And if you give me all of this, then I'll be happy. But that happiness is temporary. As soon as you give your father or your mother all of that stuff, their expectations are just going to grow. That's why you've never been able to fulfill them. Because it's a never-ending list of expectations that just keeps growing and growing and growing. Their list of expectations is impermanent. So what you have to understand is if your parents aren't going to practice true love, then you have to not take on their craving, desire, and attachments. You have to understand they're not practicing true love, and you have to get out from under those cravings, desires, and attachments, and you need to fulfill what it is that you need in your life, okay? And once again, this is one that if you would like to talk privately, you're welcome to reach out to me and uh, we can talk privately, either by audio or video or, or text chat. Deborah asks, would meditation be an alternative to pain relief? It certainly can, depending on what the pain is. If you train your mind really, really well, and as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, Pain isn't experienced in the same way that it normally is in the unenlightened state. For an unenlightened mind that doesn't understand impermanence, oftentimes we can get the smallest little pain and it can drive us to be frustrated and irritated and angry. You know, you stump your toe and people can cuss and fume and be really obnoxious and hostile just for stumping the toe because the mind isn't trained for impermanence. So as you train the mind more and more and more in all the Buddhist teachings, including meditation, you will see that the mind doesn't experience pain the same way. I'm laughing because last year I got in a motorbike accident and practically dislocated my shoulder. I had cracked ribs. My body was all tore up. And when I went to the hospital, I was so joyful. They actually gave me a drug test because I was so joyful <laughs> and I was in this horrible condition and I was I was smiling at everybody. I was talking to the doctors and the nurses and 
being pleasant with everybody. And they actually gave me a drug test. They made me do a urinalysis, which I thought was even more funny. <laughs> so the more enlightened you become, you're actually not going to experience pain in the same way. So yes, meditation can actually help you to alleviate pain. But if you're in really deep pain and you haven't done the prior work to train the mind, you're going to experience pain. So you can't just go from never meditating to now I just had a car accident and I'm going to meditate that away. There has to be this gradual progression to training the mind so that when you do experience pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional, then the mind doesn't hold on to it and it can still be joyful. It can still be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. So you'll always experience physical pain. Even when you're enlightened, you're still going to experience physical pain, but the mind won't relate to it in the same way. It won't experience it in the same way because the mind will know that it's impermanent. And even if it's something like a big motorbike accident, you won't be in such extreme pain and the mind won't become discontent the way it would if it was unenlightened and hasn't been trained. Whereas if it hasn't been trained and you've got into a motorbike accident, if there's fear of death, if there's misunderstanding of impermanence, if the mind doesn't realize that it's causing itself to be discontent, when you get in an accident, you can be crying, you can be in despair, you can be frustrated, and that can go on for a really long period of time. And then when you're in the hospital, just sitting in the hospital bed, longing for all those activities to be outside and not recognizing that you just need to be sick for a few days in the hospital, then the mind can be bored and lonely because it's in the hospital because it has this longing to be somewhere else. But if you've trained your mind really well, you won't experience physical pain the same way and you won't even experience being in the hospital and things like that the same way because you know it's impermanent and you've trained the mind not to hold on to longing with a strong eagerness for all these activities outside and you can just be in the hospital and smile and be joyful and pleasant and you know it's no big deal because you know it's impermanent thank you david we have no more questions at this time okay so why don't we switch to something from the book which i've got here i shared in the book this chart this table that kind of lists out some of the common things that are referred to as mental illnesses. And each one of these has typically a lot of symptoms underneath of them. And here what I've done is I've taken some of the more common ones and I've associated Gautama Buddha's teachings with those particular conditions. So the first one being ADHD and ADD, depending on how that manifests and how the symptoms are coming out, the symptoms are that the mind doesn't have attention, right? The mind kind of jumps from thing to thing to thing to thing and it can't focus. It doesn't have concentration. Some people might have called this person maybe hyperactive, right? And eventually it got labeled as an illness. And now if it's an illness, we can give you medicines for it and there can be profit associated with that. Well, what's going on with this person is nothing in terms of the brain. What it is is their mind just isn't trained to have right concentration. 
there's too much mental stimulus or craving for mental stimulus that the mind is jumping from thing to thing to thing to thing and the mind hasn't been trained to just be calm and content with right concentration. So ADHD or ADD is actually one of the easier ones to solve with Gautama Buddha's teachings because with some really good meditation over a period of time, this one can be taken care of pretty readily, pretty quickly. The second one here that I have is some of the eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia. Where these come from is the mind takes on this craving of this false image of beauty, wanting to be really skinny and thinking that that's what it takes to be beautiful. So there's this strong sense of self and trying to perfect this self image in this image of beauty that the mind's holding on to. And because of that craving to look a certain way that has been conditioned, oftentimes by magazines and images that are not actual real images anyway, they've been highly photoshopped. These images condition the mind of men and women to now resort to starving themselves or causing themselves to vomit or somehow having eating disorders where they think that they have to be super, super skinny. And this is just a craving for a false image of beauty. And somebody would say that this person is mentally ill or they have a mental disorder and now we have to prescribe medicines to fix this. Well, this can ultimately actually even lead to suicide for some people, right? And the reason why is because the real problem isn't being addressed. The real problem is this craving for this false image of beauty, right? This perfection of the self or self-identification or personal identity. If we eliminate that stuff through the good teachings of the Buddha, then this person can function normally without any medications, right? The third one here is anxiety. Oftentimes anxiety comes from anticipation of the future or fear of future events or situations or outcomes, right? This is just fear. This is the mind craving a certain outcome, a certain event, wanting things to be a certain way and becoming fearful, thinking that maybe you can't attain that and the mind becomes anxious, right? This is craving for a certain outcome. And then when the mind becomes fearful that that isn't gonna happen, that's where anxiety, we're causing it ourselves through the craving. And again, this person is oftentimes gonna be prescribed medications and told that there's some kind of problem with the chemistry in their brain, but the underlying core problem isn't being resolved, which is the fear of this future event or situation or outcome or this craving of wanting things to be a certain way, this anticipation. That's the real problem. We already talked about bipolar, right? This kind of holding on to the painful feelings, these sad feelings, this craving for pleasant feelings, this craving for sexual contact or material possessions. Oftentimes bipolar people will shop or what people call bipolar, they will have a lot of craving and go shopping a lot and people will spend a lot of money in a very short period of time and they'll say, okay, that's a mental illness. 
Well, no, it's just that you had a craving for possessions and you just kept spending your money until you kind of made yourself pretty much bankrupt. And craving excitement. This is the mania part of bipolar where the mind craves these pleasant feelings and oftentimes turns to drugs or alcohol. Oftentimes people with bipolar will resort to drugs or alcohol or people who have been labeled as having bipolar will resort to drugs and alcohol because it's craving these pleasant feelings. So if they work on that craving through the Buddhist teachings and they understand that they're causing that themselves, you can actually eliminate it. And that's what I did. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I eliminated all of that stuff. Same thing with depression. Oftentimes there's a past trauma that it gets held onto and it creates painful feelings or certain expectations from other people. Again, craving from other people, but then what happens is we adopt these expectations, these cravings, this wanting, this attachment from our parents or our teachers or our coach or our siblings or our partner. We adopt their cravings because it's conditioning our mind to now pursue these things. And then when we can't fulfill it, we become sad, we become depressed, we become miserable. Whereas if we just realized that's their attachments, that's their craving, that's their expectations. If they want a PhD and be a brain surgeon, then they should go do that. I would like to be a car mechanic. Or if they want to be a car mechanic and I want to be a PhD brain surgeon, then I'm going to go be a brain surgeon why do I have to fulfill somebody else's expectation, right? You need to fulfill what it is that you're interested in fulfilling in this life, not living up to other people's expectations. Because even if you start living up to other people's expectations, their expectations are going to change of you. And you're going to be on this never ending pursuit of trying to fulfill other people's expectations, which means you're going to be constantly sad, constantly miserable, constantly worried, constantly feeling horrible that you're not meeting these other people's cravings, desires, and attachments. That's their issues, not yours. You've got to fulfill your goals in life. And, and again, those people that are sad, feeling worried or miserable are going to be prescribed medicines as if there's some kind of chemical imbalance or a defect in the brain. But in reality, the mind has just been conditioned to follow these expectations of other people. And because you can't fulfill them, that's why you're sad, right? Hoarding. This person is going to have a craving, desire, attachment for possessions, right? Hoarding animals or hoarding baby dolls or hoarding possessions or hoarding people, right? We say that this person's mentally ill and they're oftentimes prescribed medications. They're just having craving. They're just wanting one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, three more things, five more things. They're just craving more and more and more things, whether it's relationships or possessions or what have you. This person isn't mentally ill, so to speak. They're having symptoms that are impacting their life and their ability to function in life. But the problem isn't a chemical imbalance because no matter what they take medicine-wise, they still have these problems. They need to train the mind to eliminate this longing with a strong eagerness for possessions. 
insomnia. Oftentimes, we're taught that if we don't sleep at a certain time or we don't sleep for a given amount of time, that we have insomnia. So according to certain people, everybody's supposed to sleep six to eight hours or eight to 10 hours or whatever that is, right? Well, that's craving permanence. People are conditioning your mind that you're supposed to go to sleep at this time and wake up at this time and it should be permanent. Well, our sleep schedule is not permanent. Some days you're gonna fall asleep at 9 p.m. Other days you're gonna fall asleep at midnight. Some days you might fall asleep at 2 a.m. And that's just how the mind works and how the body works because your sleep schedule is not permanent, right? As you awaken to enlightenment, you'll notice that you'll actually need less and less and less sleep because the mind is going to be functioning more optimally that you won't need as much sleep, right? Some enlightened people sleep two, three, four, five, maybe six hours a day at the most, right? It's kind of rumored that Gautama Buddha used to sleep one or two hours a day, right? And that's all he ever slept because his mind was functioning so optimally, right? Being the fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. So insomnia is essentially just people not understanding impermanence that some days you're going to sleep at certain times and other days you're not. Some days you're going to sleep six hours. Some days you're going to sleep eight hours. Some days you're going to sleep two hours. Some days you're going to sleep five hours. This is impermanence, right? It's not a mental illness. And as your mind awakens to enlightenment, your sleep schedule might bounce around quite a bit. That's one of the reasons why we call it awakening. Have you ever heard that? Awakening the mind? Well, as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, you're going to be awake more than normal. If you're used to sleeping 8 or 10 or 12 hours, and all of a sudden you're sleeping too, that's going to seem very weird to you. You're going to think, oh my goodness, I'm the unenlightened state. You're going to think, wow, like, Something's wrong with me. I need medication. I used to sleep eight hours and now I'm only sleeping two. Well, if you understand how the mind awakens and you understand that your sleep schedule is impermanent, then if you sleep for two hours, okay, well, today I slept for two hours. Maybe tonight I'll sleep more. But now when I walk around, I'm not going to be grumpy and talk bad to people and be hostile to people. I still need to practice this eightfold path of right in view all the way to right concentration, which includes right intention, right speech, right action. So I'm not going to use that as a license to be grumpy to people just because I slept two hours. But as your mind awakens, your sleep schedule is going to be bouncing around and that's completely normal. But if your mind is craving permanence, if you've been sleeping for eight hours for six months or a year or five years or 10 years, and all of a sudden your body and mind start sleeping less time, you might think there's something wrong with you. And you might think you have a mental illness or a chemical imbalance, and you might seek medication to force yourself to sleep eight or 10 hours if that's what the mind is craving. And that's the permanence that the mind wants. But if you understand that the mind as it awakens, you might sleep two hours sometimes and eight hours another time and six hours another time and four hours another time. And this is just impermanence. Then when that happens, you're not going to seek medical care 
because there's no medical problem here because it's impermanence it's a universal truth right so there is no problem if our schedule moves around now if you were awake for three four five six days at a time and you didn't sleep at all okay maybe i need to go see a doctor and you know, get a little bit of medication to kind of help induce some sleep and get back to a normal schedule. But if your sleep schedule is just bouncing around and you just happen to not sleep so good one particular night or two nights or something, but then you start getting your sleep again, there's nothing medically wrong with you. That's impermanence. That's a universal truth that your sleep schedule is not going to be the same every single day. Any questions on these? I have a question, David. So when it's something physical, like say we touch a hot stove, we feel the pain immediately and out of impulse, we pull our finger away. However, in some of these mental issues, it's not so quick. And I'd like to ask, how does one become attached to painful feelings? If we're holding on to these painful feelings, why is it that the mind doesn't just automatically drop them? Okay. The mind is not going to automatically drop anything. The unenlightened mind is going to hold on and hold on and hold on. That's what it does. It's an expert at this, just holding on and holding on. So oftentimes, if I share this information or somebody hears this information that has been declared and diagnosed depressed, oftentimes people start identifying with these illnesses. They don't want to let them go. Because now depression or now bipolar or now this ADHD or this ADD has become part of the self-identity because of that self that's still there. The mind wants to hold on to the diagnosis because that becomes part of their self-image and their self-identity of who they are. The mind isn't going to willingly let go of anything. You have to actively train it to let go. And that's what meditation is. In fact, the more that you try to actively train the mind to let go, the mind's going to come up with all kinds of excuses of why you shouldn't be doing that, right? And you experience this for some people when they first start out trying to do meditation and they started establishing or attempting to establish a meditation practice. When it's time to go meditate or thinking about meditation, the mind invents all of these reasons why you shouldn't go meditate. It invents all of these things that you should do. Go brush your teeth, go for a walk, go for a bike ride, call your friend, get on Facebook. This is the mind. It's that like that little dark entity that is just trying to keep you trapped in that unenlightened mind. And we are talking about complacency towards the beginning, right? That's where the complacency comes in is the mind just wants to hold on to this unenlightened state. And even though talking about it right now, and you can consciously agree, yeah, I want to get rid of those sad feelings. I want to get rid of that anger. Yeah, I want to get rid of the guilt and the shame. There's something in the mind that just holds on to it and it doesn't want to let it go. And even when you're presented with a teacher who's openly, freely offering all these resources all of this time to help you awaken the mind and get away from all this stuff, the mind just reverts back and it just holds on to these painful feelings or these pleasant feelings or these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. It doesn't want to let go, especially the ego. 
the ego tends to really hold on. It's the way that it protects the self. The self that's in the mind, there's that self-protection that it just doesn't want to let go. And this is why I always teach never to assume the ego's gone, is always work under the assumption that it's there and you're constantly trying to eradicate it. Even if one day you feel that you're actually enlightened, never convince yourself that you're actually enlightened. Never convince yourself that you're eliminated the ego. Never convince yourself that you've actually eliminated the self because that's the mind wanting to hold on. There can be that 5% of ego in there and the ego tells you, ah, you're done with the ego. You don't need to eliminate the ego anymore. But that's just the self-protection, the, the way the self and the mind holds on. So that's just the way the unenlightened mind works, Max. It just holds on and holds on and holds on. And you've got to actively say, no, that's not what we're doing. We're going to walk on this path and we're going to pursue it. And we're going to train the mind and get rid of all of this stuff. I suppose this is why David taught in the past that to be able to identify our own attachments is one of the most important skills we can learn to develop on this path. Because you know, when you touch a hot stove, it's very obvious what's causing the pain in your finger. Mm -hmm. But if we're very bound by our attachments, not seeing things carefully, we, we may be not seeing how we're actually causing it. And of course, once we see what the cause is, it then at least becomes easier to let it go. That's the problem with the three poisons, right? Craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality, because we don't know, that's why the mind's holding on, right? Before anyone studied the Buddhist teachings, there's so much unknowing of true reality that we go around blaming everyone else for why we're angry. We go around blaming everyone why we're frustrated. We blame our parents for making us feel guilty, when in fact, we've adopted their expectations, right? It's us doing it to ourselves. But in the unenlightened state, having had no contact with a teacher about the Buddhist teachings, we walk around with so much delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality that we stay in the unenlightened state and we just blame everyone else for the problems. And that's one of the reasons why I put this chapter in here because if we stay in this ignorance or unknowing of true reality, that the mind truly thinks that there's a brain defect, there's a chemical problem, and we need to keep taking this medicine, then it's just keeping the mind stuck in that ignorance, keeping the mind stuck in that delusion, keeping the mind stuck in that unknowing of true reality, which means that they're not learning right view, they're not learning all the rest of the path, and they're just going to stay stuck in that unenlightened state. So essentially what the medicine's doing is it's subduing and suppressing the feelings, giving the sense that the mind is somehow okay, but really it's just suppressed all this craving. It's suppressing the anger, but it's still keeping the ignorance or delusion or unknowing of true reality because they're not practicing right view. They don't understand right view that it's not the brain chemistry. It's the attachment that's causing the sadness. So understanding and eradicating this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, that's the number one thing that we need to use to awaken the mind through that wisdom because that's the antidote 
to this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, the antidote is wisdom. So the more that we learn and practice these teachings, we gain the wisdom, and now we understand that craving is the problem. Now we understand that that's the primary problem. Now we understand this hatred and anger. And then, as you said, in addition to meditation, the second best skill that you can have is to be able to identify your attachments. Because the number one goal, the primary goal is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Well, how could you ever eliminate these cravings if you didn't know what they were and how to identify them? So that's what chapter 12 was all about, was helping you to learn how to identify these attachments. Because once you identify them, then you can eliminate them, right? You have to be able to identify them in order to eliminate them. And that's the second best skill you could have in addition to meditation. And the beauty is, is the more that you can identify them for yourself, then you can also see other people's attachments too. So if you're in a conversation with, for example, your parents, and they're putting all kinds of expectations on you about what you should and shouldn't be doing in life, then you can just identify this as their attachments, their craving, their desire. And why would you take that on? Because you know it's just going to cause your mind to be discontent. So the more that you learn these teachings and gain the wisdom for yourself about your own mind, then you actually get really good at observing and understanding other people's minds as well. That's great. Thanks, David. Okay, so we have a question from Shital. Are there any handy techniques which you can use to calm your mind, let go of your sadness, craving for love, your feelings of always feeling like crying so that you can sit down to study? Because I'm in need of studying currently and I'm not able to study because I feel like crying all the time. Yeah, see, this is another thing that happens with the unenlightened mind is we all look for that quick fix, right? And that's what happens in modern society right now is everybody's looking for the quick fix. And, you know, this pill is supposed to be a quick fix, but it's really not. It's actually making the problem worse because now there's all these side effects and all this other problems to deal with with the medication. Unfortunately, there's no quick fix. The only thing you can do to improve the condition of your mind that's going to be a permanent fix is to gradually learn and practice these teachings and gradually train the mind to improve. And if you keep on the path that you're on now in this particular question, it's only going to get worse. So oftentimes we get into these really bad situations where like you need to study and you can't. And that can be the motivation to eradicate the complacency and start to realize that you have another full-time job. Whether you're a student, whether you're an employee, whether you're a boss, whatever you do in life, you have a second full-time job. And that second full-time job is learning these good, wholesome teachings to train the mind that lead to a better way of life, that lead to this permanent mental state of enlightenment or nibbana. You need to develop your life practice, the path that leads to nibbana. You need to learn these teachings and actively implement them into your life gradually over time and your mind will gradually improve. 
There's just no other way to do it. There's just no other way to do it. And everybody has to do the work for themselves. Every single person has to do the work. And I'm really pleased that all of you have found this group and you found these online classes and you're starting to learn, but it can't be just a one-time class or just reading the book one time or listening to a couple of podcasts. It's really almost like another full-time job. I describe it oftentimes as like a home improvement project. That sounds a little bit better than a full-time job, right? Because we kind of enjoy home improvement projects. Well, where's the home? The home is your mind. You're going to be living with this mind for the rest of this life. And if you do nothing about it, there's going to be a rebirth and you're going to have to keep doing this all over again until you figure it out. So now that you're this close to the Buddhist teachings, take on this home improvement project and have fun with it and enjoy it and realize like, wow, I'm going to be learning a bunch of stuff here. It's going to improve the condition of my mind. It's a better way of life. It isn't a religion. There's no belief whatsoever. It's all about learning and practicing the teachings so you can see the truth and gain wisdom. It's not about following me or being a devotee or anything like that. It's about receiving guidance to learn, actively learn, and apply the teachings in your life and see the mind continually improve. And when you do, whatever is involved in your life right now and the things that you're not able to do with studying, this stuff will all get worked out eventually. You've got a long life ahead of you. But if you don't work out the mind and you keep trying to dredge through this, it's like walking through the mud. You're just gonna keep walking through the mud and the whole rest of the life is going to be really difficult. So if you apply some dedication and commitment, you can really start chipping away at this and working on this home improvement project. And then the whole rest of your life is just gonna get better and better and better. And as far as I know, there's just no other way to improve the condition of the mind. Gautama Buddha, as far as I know, is the only one who taught the truth that can be independently determined and you can see the condition of the mind improve right now in this life. So you've got to get dedicated to it and look at it as a home improvement project that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. We have a question just come in from Joy. Is that why you moved to Thailand? <laughs> I moved to Thailand for a bunch of different reasons. But here in Thailand, there's a lot of Buddhist practitioners. And for me, this was the best place for me. When I moved here, I would have never told you that I was coming here to learn the Buddhist teachings and try to attain enlightenment. I would have never told you that. I had planned to move to Thailand back in 2007. Actually, as early as probably 2005, I was already thinking about it. But definitely when I met my wife in 2007, like the second question out of my mouth was, because we met in America is, are you planning to live in America for the rest of your life or go back to Thailand? She said, oh, I'm going back to Thailand for sure. And I was like, all right, well, we can have a relationship then because that was my plan too. But I would have never told you from 2005 to 2015 when I eventually moved here, I would have never told you I was coming here to learn the Buddhist teachings and 
pursue enlightenment, but by being here and seeing the reality of how peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy these people are, seeing how life is here, it doesn't take you long to figure out what is creating such a wonderful life for these people because there's temples on every street corner, especially here in Chiang Mai, where I live. There's streets. I mean, a street that is maybe 300 meters long will have 10 temples on it, right? Literally, the whole street is littered with temples. So it doesn't take long to figure out what's creating the peacefulness here. And once I was here, then, yeah, this is what I know for sure leads to the complete elimination of the discontent mind and permanent peace, calm, serenity, contentness with joy, for sure. But I would have never told you that's why I actually moved here. Okay, we have no more questions at this time. Okay, so let's move into the next chart, which has a couple of more things that people call mental illnesses, which are essentially just related to Gautama Buddha's teachings. Here you've got OCD, right? Oftentimes people that are labeled as OCD are looking for perfection, right? They're craving perfection. They're trying to get things to be a certain way and it has to be a certain way, right? It just depends on what symptoms because there's so many different symptoms that are lumped under this. Three, four, five, six different people can present completely different symptoms, but they're all labeled the same way and kind of treated the same way. So it's not a mental illness. It's not a chemical imbalance. It's just that the mind's craving this perfection. Certain personality disorders. People say that this person has a personality disorder, right? Well, where that usually comes from is people being hostile or angry or people having ego or people being arrogant, things like this. These are all things that are trained in the Buddhist teachings, training you to be more human. What people are now saying is, oh, this is a personality disorder and now you need to have medications and somehow that's going to make you talk better or that's going to get rid of your arrogance or that's going to get rid of whatever people are declaring is the personality disorder. Essentially what they're saying is, all people should be this way. All people should be this way, right? We have this perfect image of what people should be and what their personality should be. This is craving permanence. And now because you don't meet those same expectations, we're determining that you have a personality disorder because you don't meet this permanent fixed expectation of what we expect all humans to be. And because you don't fit that, you now have a personality disorder and you need to take medicine for that. And that's a defect in your brain. But in reality, you probably have some anger. You probably have some frustration. You probably have some arrogance, some ego. You're probably talking unkind to people. These are all things that get trained as part of the Buddhist teachings. It doesn't matter how much medicine you take. It's not going to get rid of the ego, right? It's not going to get rid of the arrogance. No matter how much medicine you take, it's not going to teach you to talk politely and kindly with people, right? But we call it a personality disorder and those people get medications. It's not a personality disorder. Then we've got things like phobias. There's umpteen number of phobias and fears 
that people have, like germophobia, right? Fear of heights, fear of multiple things. And oftentimes these people are also considered to have mental illnesses and placed on medications. But in reality, they just have fear. And there's a way to address the fear and a way to eliminate the fear. And oftentimes phobias come from a protection of a self. Some people have a lot of fear of death or fear to ride in a car or various fears, fears of certain animals or certain places, fear of the darkness. This is just a fear that needs to be eliminated from the mind. The mind's going to hold on because remember, that's what the mind does is it holds on this mental longing, this strong eagerness. It holds on to these fears and then you convince yourself that you're fearful. You're never going to get rid of this fear and now you're mentally ill and you need to take medication for the rest of your life. But the fear never goes away. But you're relegated to this medicine for the rest of your life, right? And that's because the, the fear is still in the mind because the mind's still holding on. It's not being trained to let go. And then the same thing with PTSD. Oftentimes people go to war or have traumatic experiences in different places. They have real painful feelings and the mind holds on to this. And then the mind becomes depressed or has trouble sleeping. This is just experiences that happened. And because those experiences were traumatic, the mind's holding on to it. And now it hasn't been trained to let it go, right? So practicing our precepts, if we didn't, for example, need to send soldiers into war, if there wasn't this fear and this ego amongst countries, where now this ego and arrogance and fear amongst countries, now we say there's a war and now we send soldiers into battle to break the precepts of killing people. And now that weighs on the mind. And now there's all these traumatic events where we're killing people, we're blowing people up, we're ripping families apart. And now those traumatic experiences get held onto in the mind. And now there's guilt and shame and fear, which oftentimes leads to suicide right? This is all from not practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings that he said, if you do these things, it's going to cause unwholesome results. There's unwholesome decisions here, and it's going to cause unwholesome results. The guilt, the shame, the fear, the PTSD, the, the, the trauma that the mind's holding on to, that's the gamma. That's the unwholesome results. So if we train our mind, if we've had those experiences, and now we train our mind to let them go, we can let those past traumas go. It doesn't matter how much medicine you take, it's not going to eliminate those memories that are being held in the mind, that, that trauma, the guilt that's being held onto because it's craving that's creating it. It's the mind holding on because of permanence, the mind's holding on, that's what's causing the mind to be discontent. Schizophrenia is one where people oftentimes have trouble focusing. They might hear voices, particularly evil voices. People oftentimes with schizophrenia, their mind is kind of lacking concentration because it hasn't been trained. And there's oftentimes voices that are coming from the afflicted spirits realm or the divine realm, the heavenly realm. And these people are considered to be mentally ill and schizophrenic because Western medicine just doesn't understand it, 
right? But if the mind is trained and develops right concentration, then they can understand and now control the mind. They can understand that these voices they're hearing are either from these other realms or from their past lives, okay? Then there's substance abuse. Substance abuse happens because people are, tend to be chasing after pleasant feelings. This is the mind craving peacefulness, trying to escape life, looking for this fix or this high, chasing these pleasant feelings of happiness because the mind is conditioned across humanity to think that we're all supposed to be happy. We're all supposed to be excited and elated. And that's the way that the mind's supposed to live. And then because that's temporary, that's impermanent and people don't understand impermanence, when the happiness is gone and it goes to sadness, then people rely on these substances for these pleasant feelings. Or if we've had trauma in our past and we feel a lot of sad thoughts and we're taught that we're supposed to be happy, everyone be happy, everybody be happy, then they can't figure out how to resolve this sadness through craving, desire, attachment, through practicing the Eightfold Path, their mind is stuck in these sad thoughts and the only thing that they have to revert to is heroin, cocaine, psychedelics, other substances, alcohol, drugs, in order to create these pleasant feelings. When if they got in touch with what the real problem is, we can eradicate substance abuse through people learning and practicing these teachings to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content rather than chase after this unrealistic happiness that's impermanent, that the mind can't hold on to. And then, of course, all of this stuff can come to suicidal thoughts. The more discontent the mind is, the more misery, the more pain, the more sad, the more guilty, the more shameful, oftentimes people just give up and they commit suicide. I think most people would probably tell you that they really don't want to die. They just want to end the suffering. They just want to end the sadness. They want to end the despair. And they don't know how because of the three poisons, craving, anger, and ignorance. Their mind is unknowing of true reality that they're actually causing the problem themselves and they can actually fix the problem themselves because they're causing it. They don't understand that and they feel trapped. They feel almost like they're in a box and there's no way out. And the only way that they see out is to kill themselves. And unfortunately, that actually doesn't solve the problem because if they've been taught that they only have one life and if they kill themselves, that will solve the problem, that's why they're killing themselves because they think that's actually solving the problem, but it's not because they're still craving in the mind the mind is still unenlightened. When somebody kills themselves, they are most likely reborn back into the world, either as an animal or afflicted spirit or something lower. They uh, eventually have to work through many, 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 many lives in the lower realms and eventually work themselves back up to the human again, right? So they haven't ended the problem. They've just made the problem worse because now they're gonna to have to experience life in the animal realm, in the lower realms, multiple, multiple, multiple times, just to get a chance to come back to the human 
life again. So now that we're in this human life, if people with suicidal thoughts understood that they can actually solve this, right? They're not mentally ill. They're having anguish. They're having suffering. They're having misery. But they're not defective. Their brain is not defective. They just don't know how to train the mind. They don't have the skills. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the understanding of how to apply these teachings. They might not even know these teachings exist and eventually just give up and kill themselves because they feel like they're stuck. So learning and practicing these teachings can eradicate all of these conditions and symptoms and a person can move closer and closer to enlightenment and we will see that this industry will shrink and we will see that less and less people around the world will be committing suicide which would be a wonderful wonderful thing so let me pause here and see if we have any questions i'd like to ask david how this applies in the case of brain damage so people who have um, injuries to the brain often their personality changes uh, or they um, become less capable in certain ways. Sometimes it's even beneficial, but you know, most of the time it seems to generally do harm to, to the mind. So how, do, how does this tie into that? Surely, you know, there's some people who have injuries, traumatic injuries to the brain that affects the functioning of their life. And that is a brain injury, right? But we know, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning where the brain is not the mind and the mind is not the brain, we know this for another reason that I didn't mention yet is people can be legally brain dead, but they completely are aware of everything that's going on around them. And eventually when they get brought back to life, they remember everything that's going on around them. And they will tell people, I had an out-of-body experience and... I could hear you guys talking the whole time, right? And this is one of the ways we know that the mind is not the brain because someone can be legally brain dead and still have consciousness and awareness and take in information. This is also where people can be in a vegetated state and have complete awareness of mind. There's people that have been brought back after five, 10, however many years of being in a vegetated state even overhearing conversations of taking out breathing tubes and you know allowing the person to die and things like this and they understood that during the time when they were supposedly you know defective with their brain so medical doctors really need to take a really close look at the buddhist teachings and understand them and actually practice them themselves so that they can make better and better decisions and medical care I'm not a doctor in terms of a, a medical doctor or a doctor of any sort. I'm a teacher of Gautama Buddhist teachings and I understand the mind very, very, very well. But there's definitely something here where the mind and the brain aren't connected and somebody can be legally brain dead or have no activity in the brain and the mind is still active. And we can learn a lot in our society and our humanity for our species if doctors would take a look at these things and start understanding more about how the mind functions through Gautama Buddha's teachings. Because if you ask me, Gautama Buddha was the world's foremost expert of the mind that ever lived and walked the face of this earth. 
And because he lived 2,500 years ago, oftentimes people think that what we invented now today is more important or more knowledgeable or more wisdom or, or better than what we had 2,500 years ago. But the Buddha awakened on his own as the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha and he understood the mind so, so well that what he taught 2,500 years ago is just as applicable today as it was 2,500 years ago. But what happens is oftentimes in modern society with our ego and our arrogance, we think that what went on 2,500 years ago was not as good as what we're doing now. We kind of look down on past civilizations. But if people let go of that arrogance and ego and really take a look at this, I think there can be a lot of medical breakthroughs in terms of how we're treating people that are having symptoms of sadness and anger, frustration, all these different things that we've been talking about today. And even brain injuries, I think that there's probably a lot that can be understood there to improve what we're doing to take care of those people. Thank you, yes, there's a lot to take away from that. I think there's a lot of confusion that can arise from assuming that the mind is the brain and vice versa, or that the mind is purely a representation of the brain. And uh, yeah, we probably don't need to go there, but um, yeah, that's been really helpful, thank you. So there's a question from Aidan. Aidan asks, I feel that sometimes I'm attached to seeking wisdom, not only from the Buddha circles I'm involved in, but also from other faiths and teachers because my mind is longing to acquire more wisdom that I can use to develop my life practice. At face value, this seems to be a good attachment, but now I'm questioning whether I I have ever learned from my own experience at all, or if I have inadvertently surrendered my own insights to the eagerness for obtaining wisdom that has not emerged from within my own mind. Is this a source of complacency? And if so, how do I stop the endless seeking for wisdom from various sources and begin to rely solely on my own cultivation of wisdom in my meditation and mindfulness? Okay, bunch of things to talk about there, Aiden. Thanks for sharing that question. There's no such thing as a good attachment. Any longing with a strong eagerness is going to cause the mind to be discontent. So there's no such thing as a good attachment. So even for something like having an attachment or a longing with a strong eagerness for wisdom, that can actually cause the mind to be discontent. So you need to find the middle with this, okay? If you keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and craving and craving and craving, the mind's just going to keep being discontent, okay? The second thing that I'll share here is you can't attain wisdom by yourself. Only a Buddha can awaken the mind to this wisdom of the natural laws of existence by themselves. While this is an independent journey that you're on by yourself as an independent journey, an independent practitioner, that you're going to learn and practice the teachings and meditate to awaken the mind, you need teachers and guides. So you will come to this wisdom through your own independent practice, but you're going to need teachers and guides since you're not a Buddha. The last Buddha that everyone is currently aware of lived over 2,500 years ago, and there hasn't been one since that everyone's aware of. So you need to learn, you need to grow. That's helpful, that's important, but you gotta find the middle. 
Because if you did nothing at all, if you were complacent, you know, the mind's going to stagnate. But if you pursue it with craving and desire, the mind's going to be discontent. So you have to find that middle where you can take care of your life-sustaining task and, and goals, you know, taking shower, having income, having food, having shelter, clothing, things like this. But you also feed this mind with learning and practicing the teachings, but do it from the middle. Okay, that's really important. Okay, we have a question from Joy. So aren't our children a good attachment? There's no such thing as a good attachment. What is happening is people are misunderstanding the word attachment. They think that care and love and kindness and compassion is attachment, right? That's not what we're talking about here. What attachment to your children would be, what it would look like, is this longing and strong eagerness, these expectations for your children to be certain people and do certain things, kind of forcing your obligations and expectations onto your children and wanting them to be a certain way and controlling them to be a certain way. This is going to cause problems in your relationship with your children. What you need to do is understand the difference between attachment and love. In the unenlightened state, we misunderstand love for attachment. What we think is love in the unenlightened state is actually attachment. Once you understand what true love is, then you can practice that with your children. And you can love them, you can be kind with them, you can be polite with them, you can guide them, you can help them in life, you can encourage them, you can support them but not by imposing your expectations on them of what they should or shouldn't be in life. Sure, you have to guide them, you have to teach them, but you don't wanna mold them, you don't wanna control them, you don't wanna force them based on your expectations. That's what attachment would be. One example I give is if my son came to me and said, Daddy, I wanna go back to America and go to college. If I said, no, you can't go, me and your mom are going to be here in Thailand and we're going to miss you. How dare you want to go back to America and go to college? You got to stay here. That would be attachment, right? That's trying to control my son through my own expectations, my own craving, my own desire, my own attachment to hold on to my son. Now he can't pursue his own path in life. Whereas if he came to me and said, Daddy, I want to go back to America and go to college. And I was like, oh, okay. If that's what you'd like to do, do you need any help or whatever I choose to say? Or, you know, do you need help finding a scholarship? Or would you like me to go on some tours with you? You know, how can I help you? That's support. That's encouragement. That's helping someone to improve their life through unconditional love rather than trying to hold on to him, which was the first example. So there is no such thing as a good attachment or craving, a desire, attachment, a mental longing with a strong eagerness. Any kind of attachment is going to cause discontentedness of mind. One person might think that meditation is a good attachment, right? This is something I hear some people say. Or being attached to the Buddhist teachings or attached to the five precepts. Well, if you're attached to meditation, if you have this longing and strong eagerness to meditate, well, someday you're not going to be able to do it, right? Like when I had my motorbike accident, I couldn't meditate for a week and a half. 
if I had a longing and a strong eagerness to meditate, I would have been angry, sad, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, what have you, that I couldn't meditate. And I would have been disgruntled about that. And then it would have came out of my speech and my actions with the people around me. So even if you have a craving, desire, attachment for something as good and wholesome as meditation, it's going to cause the mind to be discontent. So there's no such thing as a good attachment. We have a comment from Shanta from when we were talking about brain injuries. And she says that my brother had a brain injury and was classified as brain dead. They wanted to unplug him, but my mother didn't allow it. And he came back. So I just wanted to share that comment from Shanta. Yeah, that's a perfect example of how the brain and the mind are, in my view, are not the same thing. So we have a question from Deborah. She asks, does everybody experience observance of past lives on their path to enlightenment? And how do you know this is a reality and not just a dream. Everybody does not experience past lives on the path to enlightenment as far as I know. Some people do, some people don't. I only know that from one particular person that I know has attained enlightenment. I asked him, had he experienced his past lives? And he said, no, he hadn't. So my understanding is that people can attain enlightenment and not have seen their past lives. Other people have attained enlightenment and seen their past lives as well. This question came up about dreams before. All I can really speak to in terms of observance of past lives is what I experienced. When I observe past lives, it happened over multiple years of memories coming back and me experiencing the memories of those past lives, and even in some cases talking as if I was that person, talking through that consciousness almost, like those memories were coming out, and I would catch myself in conversations talking as if I was that person. And this is where people might say you have multiple personality disorder and label you as mentally ill, but I realized over a long period of time as these were happening that they were actually past lives. And the final straw that proved to me that these were past lives is I was sleeping or getting ready to sleep and I was laying on the floor talking on the phone to my wife and these flashes of previous lives went through my head, through my mind, like a streaming movie. It was like a film strip. Uh, the old time film strip. And all I saw was like chicken, goat, uh, you know, worm, you know, all the different animals, just countless, 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 countless animals streaming through my mind. And at that particular time, and even when I was talking through these other lives, having these residual memories, I had never studied Gautama Buddha's teachings about the cycle of rebirth. And I never believed in the cycle of rebirth. I knew it was something he taught, but I never believed it. And I never had studied any of his teachings about it. And having had all those experiences of living through those consciousness and kind of speaking as if I was those people in the past, the two human existences, and seeing all those flashing animals going through my mind, about two or three months later, I started diving into the Buddhist teachings and I saw him describing in his teachings what I had experienced in terms of the countless animal rebirths. 
and the previous human existences and things like this. So from that standpoint, it's not like I learned the Buddhist teachings and my mind was conditioned to then have these experiences. It wasn't that. It was I had all these experiences first. Then when I explored his teachings and investigated them, they explained exactly what I experienced. So that's how I experienced past lives, a little bit of it. I wasn't dreaming at all. I was fully conscious, alert, and aware of what was going on. And it was quite unsettling at the time because I, I didn't understand what it was. And it wasn't until later that I learned the Buddhist teachings that it all started making sense and the mind then became more and more stable in understanding what I had experienced. We have a question from Mitravinda on Zoom. I am a practitioner of Buddhism. It's Nichiren Buddhism. And in this practice, I do a chant, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. I want to know if there is any other meditation which we need to practice in Buddhism. Chanting for me, in my experience, is helpful to develop awareness of breath and awareness of mind and ease the mind into meditation and ease the mind out of meditation. From my experience, what is being taught in other traditions of Buddhism about chanting and some magical thing or mystical thing is going to happen, this is not true. This isn't what the Buddha taught. There are some traditions that teach if you chant certain chants, it will eliminate your unwholesome gamma and get rid of all the bad gamma. Or if you chant this certain chant, it's going to produce enlightenment. Or if you chant this certain chant, it's going to do some beneficial thing. From my experience, chanting is helpful, but it's not required. Not everybody needs to chant in order to attain enlightenment. And that's how you know the truth that chanting isn't producing anything beneficial because it's not required in order to attain enlightenment. What it's producing in terms of benefit for me is awareness of breath, awareness of mind, easing the mind into meditation and easing the mind back out of meditation. It can also help with memorization and improve your memory. So there are no scripts, right? Like do this chant, do this meditation, do it for 30 minutes a day do this prostration and you will get to enlightenment, right? This is the mind craving permanence. There's the entire path that needs to be learned and applied to your practice. There's two meditations that the Buddha taught that are absolutely needed for enlightenment. Those are the only two, breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. He taught another meditation for eliminating sexual cravings which is kind of an optional specialized meditation for people who need that, but not everybody needs to use a meditation to eliminate sexual cravings because some people can do it without that meditation. But in order to attain enlightenment, you need to eliminate sexual contact if you're going to go for the highest stage of enlightenment, when or if you're ready to actually do that at whatever point in time, maybe in the future that you might choose to do that. And that might not be for 10, 20, 30 years from now. Who knows? But if you're having trouble with sexual contact, you can use this meditation to go from maybe four, five, six, eight, ten partners down lower and lower to kind of extinguish your sexual craving or at least reduce it. But from my experience, a lot of what's being taught 
isn't exactly what is described in the Theravada teachings of the Pali Canon. And there's a lot of misunderstanding in the world about chanting and how long we need to be meditating, what types of meditations. Sometimes people crave meditation so much or like Aiden was talking about craving wisdom so much that they go on this never ending quest to learn all these different meditations. And the mind just wants one more, one more, one more chant, one more this, one more that. That's the craving that's causing the mind to be discontent. Whereas if you just focus on what the Buddha actually taught in the Pali Canon that we know is the largest, most complete collection of his teachings, and you focus on that and practice that, you can then see the condition of the mind improve, and you can see that your anger and frustration goes down to irritation, annoyance, to a dislike, and eventually you don't have any discontent feelings whatsoever. So I'm not going to give you an answer in terms of what other chants or what other meditations, because this is just the mind craving more, 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 wanting more. If you get this book, which is free, you can download it. Or if you want a copy of the printed version, you can get that and Amazon prints them for you. Then you can start learning what the Buddha taught about how to train the mind to eliminate this craving. And while I was answering this question, I thought about what I wanted to share with Aiden. Aiden, you were talking about learning various different traditions and on this quest and craving for wisdom. From my experience, when we start mixing all of these different traditions, this makes it really confusing and really hard to make progress when we actually start mixing things. I know in Buddhism, there are some people who practice Theravada teachings, Mahayana, Vajrayana, these other sects that like this person was talking about, and they kind of mix it all together. From my perspective and my experience, if you really want to confuse yourself and make yourself utterly confused and inhibit your progress on the path to enlightenment, that's the one sure way to do it, is by mixing a whole lot of different traditions together. From my perspective, what I would encourage people to do is pick one tradition and stick with it. For me, that was the Theravada tradition because Theravada means teachings of the elders, which is essentially the form of the teachings that is closest to the lifetime of the Buddha of what he actually taught during his life. And in this tradition, we're not interested in mixing with other traditions necessarily. And we're also not interested in adding and modifying things that the Buddha taught. We're interested in keeping it as the Buddha taught it within the Pali Canon because we know that to be the source and we have enlightened people in our community that we know have attained enlightenment. So we have the truth and we see a society of people like Thailand who are 95% Buddhist practitioners in the Theravada tradition. We see them getting along, being very kind, very peaceful, very loving, very generous. They have a very warm, loving society here. So the teachings are working. So we have the truth and we know that these teachings lead to an enlightened mind. And if anybody would like to learn them, that's what we're here for, is to share them with the world. If the world asks us to teach them, we're not going to run around the world and try to force everybody to become enlightened because that's not how enlightenment works. Enlightenment works is when people pursue it and when they seek it. So Thailand had these teachings for many centuries now, 
but they're not trying to force it upon anybody. They're just here and available for anybody who would like to come and really learn the truth from the Theravada tradition. And you're welcome to do that through the resources that I offer and here in Thailand as well. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. Then what I will do is just thank all of you for joining. Whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, I wish you a very good rest of your day and appreciate you joining. Some really great questions. I would like you guys to really think about what we talked about today in terms of mental illness and how this is a modern invention of classifying discontentedness in different ways, labeling it as a disorder and a defective brain, and then applying chemicals to try to fix craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality, fixing this self, this permanent self, and this ego that exists in the mind. If you have been classified as people considering you to be mentally ill, if you don't accept that and you decide that you're not going to believe that you're mentally ill because you're obviously talking, you obviously walk, you obviously hold a job, you obviously go to school and have grown up, there's nothing defective about your brain. You've just been told that that's what it is. But if you get in touch and talk with people that understand discontentedness of mind and how to solve it through Gautama Buddha's teachings, you can solve these symptoms that cause a lot of anguish, that cause a lot of suffering, that cause a lot of misery or discontentedness of mind. And you can eventually get to a stable, peaceful mind that is unshakable. You can get to this enlightened mental state or as close to it as possible during this life. And if not, then you will be reborn into future lives and have an opportunity to continue to evolve in those lives as well. But continuing down the road of medications or blaming other people for our problems or looking externally for pleasure, this isn't going to amount to permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind. You're just going to keep chasing after the pleasant feelings. You're never going to get to that permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, which is what an enlightened being is going to experience, which is permanent. Okay? So continue to learn the teachings from the resources that I provide, the book, YouTube videos, podcasts, quizzes, online classes, in-person classes once we start opening up from COVID, the various resources that I provide where like you can come and schedule a personal session with me, multiple personal sessions if you like, where I can spend time with you on audio and video and teaching you privately if you'd like. I'm available to help you continue to progress or even just start on this path to enlightenment. And you will see that life will just get better and better and better. When Gautama Buddha became enlightened, he didn't say he had found a new religion. He didn't say he had discovered a new religion. He said, I discovered a better way of life. And that's essentially what I've discovered here in Thailand. 
is a better way of life. And I'm sharing that with all of you, for those of you guys that would like to learn and practice the teachings. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation at nine o'clock Thai time. So whatever time zone that is for you, where you're at, you can join us on Wednesday at 9 p.m. Thai time, either in Zoom or in our live stream, and you can learn breathing mindfulness meditation, which is what you need in order to start eliminating this craving, desire, attachment that's causing the discontent mind. You need to have the breathing mindfulness meditation. And then next Sunday at nine o'clock, we're going to be going into chapter 23, which is the symbolism of the teachings representing the teachings through imagery. And I'm going to show you guys some of the imagery that's been used over multiple centuries to represent the teachings of the Buddha so that when you go into temples, when you see artwork, when you see statues, when you see various things in books, this imagery and the symbolism will mean something to you as it connects this symbolism to the actual teachings of the Buddha. So that's what we're going to be doing next Sunday at nine o'clock. So look forward to seeing you on Wednesday at nine or Sunday at nine. And until then, have a very good rest of your day. Be sure to continue to meditate and be sure to treat each other with lots of love, kindness, and compassion. We'll see you next time. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.